Good evening and welcome everyone. I'm Steve Donovan and I have the privilege of serving as the Director of Alumni Relations at Trinity College. We hope you and your loved ones continue to remain well and safe. And for those who have suffered loss due to the pandemic, the hearts of the Trinity community go out to you. This is a time of the year when so many of us are accustomed to enjoying the spring splendor of our beautiful campus. Commencement and reunions provide the opportunity for the newest of our alumni, along with the more seasoned, to celebrate each other and our college. We're eagerly looking forward to the time when we can resume those special traditions, but in the meantime, are excited to be able to celebrate some Trinity pride virtually. We've created the virtual long walk to allow you to stay connected from the comfort and safety of your homes and offices. And thanks to the many of you who have tuned in for previous presentations and for the wonderful comments and suggestions you're sending along. Keep them coming. You can find the virtual long walk on the college's alumni website and we encourage you to check it out often. We have a couple of more exciting presentations coming in just the next few weeks, so stay tuned. Tonight, we're thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with Matthew Prince, class of 96, who has had quite an impact on our planet in fairly short order. But first, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce another individual who has blazed quite a trail of her own, and fortunately is doing that on behalf of Trinity College. President Joanne Berger Sweeney is going to lead us through what promises to be a fascinating conversation with Matthew, and it is now my honor to turn the screen over to President Berger Sweeney. So hello, thank you, Steve, and welcome to all of you who are joining the presentation today. First of all, I hope that you are healthy. I hope that you and your loved ones are safe. This evening, it is a real honor to be joined by Matthew Prince, a member of the class of 1996. It's our intention today to explore a couple of relevant topics, things that are incredibly timely right now. First, we want to discuss kind of the new world that the pandemic and quarantine has created with what I think most of us appreciate, a very high use of the internet. And we're going to explore a little bit the vital role that Cloudflare has played in this. Second, I hope that we have a chance to talk a bit about entrepreneurship, and education, and maybe the roles that those have played in Matthew's journey. And then third, I want to make sure that I take a couple of questions that we have from students and alumni. So with that outline of how we're going to proceed today, I first want to introduce you to Matthew Prince. He is co-founder and CEO of Cloudflare, whose mission is to help build a better internet. I love the simplicity and clarity of that as a mission for his um, business. Today, the company runs one of the world's largest networks, which spans more than 194 cities in 90 countries. Matthew earned his BA in English Literature and Computer Science at Trinity College. He completed his JD at the University of Chicago, and he's a member of the Illinois Bar. He holds an MBA from Harvard Business School, where he was the George F. Baker Scholar and awarded the Dubliner Prize for Entrepreneurship. Matthew is a World Economic Forum technology pioneer, a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, winner of the 2011 Tech Fellow Award, and serves on the board of advisors for the Center for Information Technology and Privacy Law. He's also the co-creator of Project Honeypot, the largest community of webmasters tracking online fraud and abuse. So welcome, Matthew, 
It thank is you. a true honor to have you here this evening. President Berger Sweeney, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's start by hearing a little bit of your story. Kind of where are you from? How did you get to Trinity? A little bit about your academic and maybe extracurricular pursuits and your career path. Sure. So I grew up in uh, I grew up in the mountains of Utah, uh, in in Park City, Utah, and um, you know, growing up there, I, I wanted to get as far away uh, as I possibly could, um, and which is funny because now it's one of those places that I that I, I call home and um, and and uh, and feel very comfortable. But but back then, you know, I was I was a, a kid growing up in a pretty pretty small and sheltered town, and uh, and had a vision that I wanted to go to. Um, you know, what I, what I really thought was going to be uh, sort of New England, uh, liberal arts, um, pastoral, I kind of had that, that vision of, of where, where, I, where I was headed and, um, and, and went to look at a number of schools and, and one of my, my dad's best friends growing up, this guy named Jim Tozer, uh, oh, we know Jim. Uh, <laughs> a, a class of 63 and, and um, if, I, if I remember correctly and and had been has been on the board and and uh, and he encouraged me to take a look at at Trinity and um, and it ended up being um, it got into a handful of schools and ended up being the one uh, that that I chose and showed up on campus in uh, 1992 lived in in the North Campus dorm um, my my roommate was a guy named Kenny Pouch um, and and I remember like there was a form that everyone had to fill out. Uh, ahead of time on what the sort of who your who your roommate should be and you know that the only thing I remember putting down on the form was you know it was like musical taste and I was like anything but rap and I showed up and um, and Kenny who went by um, Kenny Ken uh, was playing like just beatbox rapping and just going crazy <laughs> and I thought what went wrong what, what I learned later is that Ken Ken's mom filled the format for him, so so I think that's how I ended up getting matched. But we ended up being, uh, you know, being friends, and I actually saw him a couple of years ago. Um, he's in, in Washington D.C. now, and, um, and and just you know had a had a had a, had a good experience, um, you know, in that 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 first year over in, in North Campus. Oh gosh, well that's <laughs> that's great. Um, tell me what. You know, for many people that English computer science sounds like uh, an interesting combination. And even though I think I know part of the story, I'm gonna ask, how did you end up with that kind of combination of academic pursuits? Um, uh, I, so I was, I was pretty good at computers um, going in. When my, my grandmother in, in 1980, when I was seven years old, gave me an Apple II Plus and um, I took to it like a duck to water and really, really loved it. I did, I did things that made me incredibly popular in middle school, like going to computer camp um, and, uh, and, and got, to, got to Trinity. My mom used to actually sneak me into, at the University of Utah, she would sneak me into computer science classes and she'd pretend to take the continuing education classes and I would do the homework. <laughs> and, um, and, and so I got to Trinity really knowing that. And I remember, um, it was in the early days of, you know, uh, the internet and campus networking. And I remember they had a, a small group of students. There were two students, a guy named Jim Barr and I can't remember the other student's name. They would go around everyone's dorm rooms and set their computers up. And when Jim got to my room, I'd already had mine set up and connected to the network. And so um, he basically got the school to hire me as one of the three student network technicians. And so I was the, the third one that would go around and set it, help set everyone's computers up. And so I, I thought I was going to study computer science, um, and then the challenge was that uh, you know I was a uh, you know probably in, in retrospect quite quite you know arrogantly I, I took kind of the intro computer science courses and thought I know all this stuff already. It was too easy for you, huh? Well, yeah, but I mean that's I mean there's it, there's a lot more to it that um, that I never I never got to, and I and I, and I there's probably a lot more that I could have. Uh, could have done, but I, I thought, you know, I, I really want to be here to learn something else. And, and I think one of you know, the other things is I'd grown up in a pretty sheltered place in, in Utah, and I looked around the computer science courses. And unfortunately, back then, as, as it still is now, although, you know, hopefully getting, getting better, there weren't a lot of women in the computer science courses. And I thought part of the reason I came to college is I wanted to date a girl. And, um, 
And so I thought, where where would we be able to find you know someone else I can meet meet uh, someone? And I thought English literature that would be that'd be good. And so um, and so that I, I switched. I ended up minoring uh, in computer science. I think I was one credit short because uh, they, they wanted me to take calculus, and I just didn't want to take calculus again. <laughs> and um, and so and so I but, but you know ended up studying computer science and uh, for for a portion of that, and then English literature. What was What's tricky is that, and I don't know if Trinity still does this, but at the time you had to write uh, a thesis that combined your major and your minor into one unified topic, and it was it was somewhat of a struggle. And um, it was it, I was working on it in 1995, and it was right as the internet kind of was taking off. Um, Amazon had just launched. Um, uh, Netscape had just formed and and gone public, and 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 the internet you know, was just exploding. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time, you know, we had started something on campus, um, Jim Barr, the, the tech and, and a guy named uh, um, uh, Pete, uh, Peter and Paul, I can't remember their, their last names, um, started this thing called the Trend Call Journal. And we had such mm -hmm. a hard time. It was, it was, a, it was it Wired actually gave us a, a prize for being the first online only magazine. And, um, and we had such a hard time getting people to write for it um, because if you are, I was, I was also doing the newspaper at the time, the tripod, which I assume is still a tripod. Mm -hmm. um, and and you, it was easy to get students to write for that because you were trying to impress, you know, whoever it was you were trying to impress on campus, but no one on campus could get their browser to not crash all the time. And so nobody wanted to write for this online only journal. And I remember getting an email from somebody in Japan and they were saying, you know, in, 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 in sort of broken English, um, I, I love what you're writing in the, in the Trend Call Journal, please keep writing it. And I remember thinking, why do I care if someone in Japan is reading this if, you know, the, the cute girl I have a crush on down the hall isn't? And, and, so, and, and so I remember thinking, this internet thing, it's a fact. And so I think somewhere, hopefully, tucked in some vault, there is a copy of my thesis where I spent about 200 pages arguing that the internet was, uh, was, was never going to amount to anything. Um, and, uh, and I think I've been living that down ever, ever since. Well, that certainly sounds like something that we should look for. But in response we'll, to your we'll, question... I hope, I hope you don't find it. So, <laughs> um, In response to your question, no students don't have to combine the two topics of their major. They can choose to write a thesis in one topic or the other. And the second is absolutely yes, this tripod still exists and um, is published both somebody online. Should that, somebody should bring back the Trend Call Journal. It's, uh, you can huh. still, if you search around for it, you can find the archives. And it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. Um, Peter and Paul were the real architects behind it and they said, mm -hmm. The future of publications is going to be digital, and so we're going to do something that's digital only. And it was it was it was pretty revolutionary for its yeah, time. Yeah, we'll we'll take a look. Now, as you mentioned the internet, I thought I would ask a question. For for many people, and I might even count myself as one of them, the internet is just something that works. Even though it is quite clear that a lot is going on behind the scenes. So I'm gonna ask you to give us a little bit of insight into what is happening behind the scenes on the internet and how that might have changed a bit during the current lockdown when internet usage is way up. Can you give us a little insight? Sure, so um, uh, what, so starting out with what Cloudflare does. So um, if if you uh, summon an Uber uh, on on your phone, which is something that a lot of people who who are listening to this will have done, um, they, they uh, are a customer of ours. Uh, if you uh, click the app on your phone, what happens is that app on your phone will connect to a server which is running somewhere close to you. So you're in in Hartford, Connecticut. I'm in San Francisco, California right now. Um, if you push the button on your phone, it would connect to one of Cloudflare servers uh, running. We I think we have, a, we have a data center in Hartford, so it would connect to one that's there. In my case, it would connect probably 
uh, to a facility that we have down, down the peninsula. And at that point, we'd be making a bunch of decisions on are you a good guy or a bad guy? Uh, are you trying to actually get a car? Or are you trying to hack the Uber service in some way? And if the answer is that you're a bad guy, we stop you then out at the edge and our network provides that as a service to our customers. And if you're a good guy, then we put you essentially on a fast lane across the internet. And so the value that we're providing to our customers is we help them be more secure, uh, we help them be more performant faster, and we help them be more reliable so that if something goes wrong in some part of the internet, we can help route around it. And so I tell you that just to give you a context of what we see and what we don't see, because our view is going to be different than what a Facebook would see. They just see what happens on Facebook. Whereas in our case, we have about, closing in on about 15% of all the web sits behind our network. So chances are, uh, if you've used the internet at all in the last 24 hours, you've probably interacted with our network hundreds of times. And what that allows us to do is see general patterns. So we can look at our customers and say, you know, who is in banking versus grocery versus healthcare versus education and what's trending um, right now. And so um, some things that seem really obvious after the fact um, are up a ton. So educational and kids content, um, especially is up, uh, is, is, has gone up about 200% uh, in terms of, of utilization. Uh, whereas travel uh, and sports scores and other things that are, are significantly down. And so we can see what those general trends are. Um, and, and if you're interested in that, if you go to builtforthis.net, uh, that's a place where we published a lot of the statistics on what we're seeing in terms of, of those overall trends, um, in terms of specific types of sites. Uh, overall on the internet, it's, it's been pretty remarkable. There's a, a direct link between when cities or regions go into lockdown and when internet usage spikes. And so on average across the entire internet today, uh, mm -hmm. you're seeing about a 50 to 60% overall increase in internet use. Um, which is pretty remarkable because there are not very many, um, there are not many utilities that are out there that if all of a sudden over the course of six weeks, they saw a 60% increase in utilization. And in some parts of the world, we're seeing more than doubling, uh, that they would continue to function as well as, as they have. And so I think it's, it's pretty remarkable. It speaks to the overall uh, architecture of the internet. And then I also think it speaks to the work that we've done at Cloudflare and other companies like us, other cloud companies, to make sure that these services can continue to scale and continue to uh, work. So on our team, I think that this has been a, this has been a very stressful time. Um, you know, we saw more growth in traffic across our network in the last 12 weeks than we did in the last 12 months. And so it was uh, just a very dramatic um, uh, growth across, across our network. Um, and we also, uh, you know, I, I think the other piece is that, you know, obviously the, the superheroes uh, of this crisis are the, the medical professionals and the scientists who are taking care of the sick and, and, and looking for a cure. Um, but the sort of faithful sidekick the Ant-Man to Captain Marvel um, is, is the internet. And I think that our whole team um, has been really motivated by our mission of helping build a better internet, knowing that keeping it online right now has never meant more than it, than it, it could. And I think that that's been a, a very solemn responsibility that, that we've taken seriously. And so what has that meant? Um, it means there's a lot of people staring at computers, fixing problems as they, as they come up. Um, it's a lot of people inventing uh, new technology that we can deploy so we can become more efficient. It's also a lot of people trying to figure out how when you have a pandemic that, especially early in the crisis, shut down Asia, which is where most of the equipment that we actually buy and build is manufactured. Um, and then you shut down a lot of air travel, which meant that the ability to ship equipment all around the world went down. How do you get creative make sure that you're um, moving up your supply chains, making sure you're getting all that equipment that you need because under all of those electrons that are carrying this signal back and forth to us, there are a whole bunch of atoms that are actually the servers and switches that are carrying that. And um, as, as usage has gone up, 
you've needed more of that equipment at various places where there are hot spots and it's never been harder to get that. So I'm, I'm incredibly proud of our team and, and the diversity of the, the set of challenges that, that we've had to solve over the course of the last two months has been, has been really, really amazing and inspiring. And, and uh, I'm proud that I'm proud this call and, and many others is going as well as they are. Well, well that's, that really is quite amazing. So I have therefore two follow-up questions. One, do you have any sense of how close to capacity you are? If there's another doubling over the next, you know, 12 weeks, if we continue to be locked down, which I know none of us hope that we will, do you feel as though you still have the ability to continue to upscale as usage may upscale? And then maybe the other question is, what do you think will happen after the pandemic and when we can get back out? So those are kind of two follow-up questions for you. Yeah, so, so the first thing is we are, the overall internet usage is still rising. Um, and, and, but the good news is that the bottlenecks on the internet are not in the core of the internet. The bottlenecks tend to be out at the edge of, of the internet. And so what matters is less about overall internet usage and what matters is more about regional internet usage, if that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing in regions is that they are largely peaking. Um, the world has been staring at curves um, for quite some time. We've been staring at them too, but they are internet curves. And, um, and, and you know, we wiped some sweat from our brow when we saw as various regions sort of hit a maximum and then held, um, and then held at, at that point. Um, we're still well within the capacity of our network, and I think the internet as a whole is still well within its capacity. But, you know, the late Senator Ted Stevens said that the internet is just a series of tubes, and he got mocked mercilessly by, by the internet. Um, but I'm here to tell you the internet is just a series of tubes, and those tubes have a finite capacity. And so there are times where there are various parts of the internet where we've seen challenges. So in Europe, for example, which is largely dependent on older internet connection technologies like DSL. Um, providers like YouTube and Netflix voluntarily downgraded the quality of their picture in order to make sure there was enough capacity for what were critical services. And it's a way, you know, if you take a super high resolution picture, it takes up more space storing it on your phone than if you take kind of a low resolution picture. Um, the same thing is true with the video stream. The, the higher the resolution, the more bits have to flow. And if it's just, it's just a series of tubes, it, those bits are effectively filling that tube up. And so them taking that down uh, freed up an enormous amount of capacity. And the good news is that that's a lot of buffer. So um, just in terms of the overall bandwidth of the internet, um, Netflix um, at any given moment is about 15% of all internet bandwidth. So if they really? <laughs> the quality of their picture, they effectively take away, you know, uh, the seven, seven and a half percent right. of all internet mm -hmm. traffic. YouTube's about the same. What's crazy though, is so many more people were sitting home and watching their Netflix and streaming YouTube that those services were in some places doubling their capacity. And, and again, I think that goes back to speaking to the miracle of the internet. You had two services that together were res responsible for 60% of internet or 30% of internet capacity, and they doubled what you would think of as 60% of internet capacity, and it still worked. And I think that that's really the miracle of, of the original design that goes back to the, the 1960s, and that's really the miracle of what, what a bunch of companies like us have been able to do over the last 10 years uh, to make it so something like this, a call that the internet was never designed to be able to handle something like this can, can work as seamlessly as it does. Well, that's amazing. And I wanna say thank you, yes, to the superheroes. And we agree that that's people in the medical profession, but I also wanna say thank you for the heroes. If you, I would put you in the category of superheroes too. Well, I, I think we're, we're, we're a faithful <laughs> sidekick, but I'll definitely, I'll definitely <laughs> pass that on to our to Oh, that's terrific. Um, now, if I can switch a little bit to a statement that you made earlier when you were first describing what Cloudflare does with Uber. 
and that the first thing you do is determine who the good guys or good gals are and who are the bad guys and the bad gals, which is clearly a question of security. I assume security and privacy are really intertwined. So can you tell me a little bit about how Cloudflare makes that determination? You know, how do you know? You know, at some level, um, internet security is just statistics. And so what we're looking for are patterns of indications that indicate someone is is trying to do something bad versus trying to do something good. So an example might be, if we know that your particular browser has has a certain pattern to it and it and it you know and it buys e-commerce things and it and it visits you know what your daily calendar is and, and we know that about you that means if all of a sudden that you show up somewhere else trying out a new ride service that we can essentially say oh you're a you know mm-hmm. this is this is uh this is you know president burger sweeney and we know that she's not trying to hack the service likely, and so we can give you essentially that fast lane across it. On the other hand, if we see that you're behaving like an automated system uh, or that you're scanning for certain known vulnerabilities, we can also look for that and essentially increase the amount of friction that you have as you go across, across the internet. And our job is to take all of the data that we see and be able to separate the world increasingly into sort of those those two camps. And so when we do our job well, um, the internet just works for folks like you, um, but for the hackers and spammers and, and other bad guys that are out there, um, we help our customers stay stay safer from them. Right, so have you seen an increase in volume since the quarantine of security threats, hackers online? I feel like I have personally, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> you know? um, so there are a number of different threats. What you've probably seen personally have been more people trying to pretend that they are a uh, health professional, um, letting you know that they, that they want you to sort of uh, give them personal information or, or something that mm-hmm. would, uh, would, would be, would be uh, trying to compromise your identity. Um, what we've seen in general is that the volume of those attacks hasn't gone up um, very much, okay. but they've almost all shifted from instead of pretending to be a Nigerian prince that will just wire you some cash if you send them a check first. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, they're trying to pretend that they have some COVID-related uh, scam to it. So I think that might be part of what you're noticing. Overall, across the internet, though, um, we have seen uh, a, a, an increase in attacks. And it really came, I think, in two ways. Um, the first uh, is um, ho- hopefully not, not, not a, a, a Trinity problem in, in particular, but what I would call the bored kid problem, which is that yeah. the minute that uh, school started canceling uh, their, their sessions, mm-hmm. uh, before they had figured out how to transition into a virtual uh, experience, we saw a significant uptick in what were relatively unsophisticated attacks. And that's not totally surprising. Um, when school lets out, the number of cyber attacks online um, go up. Uh, in certain parts of the world, when it's test season, especially if they rely on electronic testing, um, attacks go up because the modern equivalent of pulling the fire alarm to get out of the test is launching a DDoS attack in order to knock your online testing uh, platform offline. So we saw that as the first as the first peak, and then it settled back down. Um, that that was probably the less concerning. The more concerning, more recent uh, trend is that there are a number of attacks that are targeting largely either government or medical infrastructure, um, hospitals, and other other um, service providers. Mm-hmm. And those appear to be more sophisticated, in some cases might be nation state or pseudo nation state um, related. And that's why you saw out of Europe, there was a, a, a declaration that, um, that, that effectively amounted to, 
you're a real jerk if you if you're attacking you know medical professionals trying mm -hmm. to provide, provide care during during this this crisis um right. use a little bit more dignified language than that but but i think that's the case and so what we're doing is saying that for any government institutions or any healthcare institutions that need our services right now um, we stand ready to help them we're providing services at no cost uh, and it's just part of our, our continued effort to make sure that um, we can use our expertise and our technology to make sure that the the internet continues to function and and organizations that are, are providing these critical services continue to be able to deliver them right um, well first of all thank you on behalf of you know healthcare centers and um, you know, medical profession in general, because that's an important, a really important service that you're offering. I'll share with you that I sit on the board of directors of Hartford Healthcare, which is um, the largest healthcare system now, or always competing with Yale um, for size. And until I you know, was a member of the board, I hadn't realized how serious the attacks against healthcare, um, you know, are, and of course, how much of our personal information That's is right. in the healthcare system. It was just a magnitude of a problem that even, you know, here in higher education, I hadn't even imagined. So, you know, once again, I just say thank you um, on behalf of what you're doing. And of course, I saw today maybe it was yesterday in the New York Times, a large full page ad asking um, you know, governments to make sure that there were reduced cybersecurity threats yep. on the medical um, you know, profession and on healthcare in general. So that's- and I think that, you know, The challenge is that everyone, you, know, you, ha you have a lot of healthcare um, it runs on a sort of a legacy IT infrastructure um, that depends on the idea of you build a castle and a moat and you put all your secrets in the castle and you build a moat around it and you put and you make your, all your employees come to the castle every day to do their work. What's challenging is right now the attackers know that as everyone is having to now work remotely, Right. There are a lot of essentially drawbridges that are getting lowered across those moats. And so that is causing an uptick because if you can compromise that information, then even if the, the target isn't the healthcare organization itself, the data that that healthcare organization has about the, your information um, will then allow an attacker to use that to commit a number of other, other um, pieces of fraud. So, so we're definitely seeing, unfortunately, an, a, a rise in those attacks, and, it, and it's something that we're very cognizant of. Right. Thank you. And also, I appreciate your analogy, you know, of the castle and the moat and the drawbridges. And I'm just going to attribute that to your English literature background and your liberal arts degree. There Allow me to it, do it, that. It does. It does. It does <laughs> turn out that that. Um, you know, I, I joke that it that my computer science degree isn't so good for writing code anymore, but it's good for knowing when engineers are lying to me, and my uh, my um, engineering or my my law degree isn't isn't so so um, useful for um, practicing law, but but for knowing when lawyers are lying to me, um, right. and, and my my business degree isn't isn't really so useful for managing our books or anything else, but I at least can can communicate with our finance team. Um, <laughs> but but every day, uh, you know, being able to speak and write and communicate is is pretty pretty right. clearly. Absolutely essential. So um, tell me a little bit about Project Honeypot. Uh, Project Honeypot was a, I mean, so, so you know, we, I, I've been incredibly fortunate over the last 10 years to build, build Cloudflare, but, um, you know, for the, for the period of time between when I graduated from, um, when I graduated from Trinity and when I, when I, when, when we started Cloudflare, you know, I, I had a, it, it, it turns into a lot of degrees from a lot of schools, um, but it was a lot of kind of wandering in, in the wilderness looking for the right thing to do. I, I you know, I, I went to law school and thought I was, I was, I was going to be a lawyer and realized very quickly that that wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, you know, then I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try and, and join, you know, a tech startup uh, right, right at the same time that March of 2000 happened and the internet bubble burst. 
and so hmm. wasn't quite sure what to that to do with that. I, I kind of puttered around. Um, you know, I, I taught taught law school courses. Um, I, you know, I, I I started another company that 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 wasn't very successful. Um, and, and and but out of that company, we would work on a lot of kind of fun side projects. Um, one of them was we predicted the winners of the Sundance Film Festival in advance using huh. Bayesian statistical analysis. Um, another was we allowed people to swap their Google cookie to make it harder for Google to track you online. Um, by you and I would you, like we would just trade our cookies back and forth, and so <laughs> hard to separate signal from noise if yeah. if everyone's signal was the same. Um, and, and then, and then the, the third one, and the one that, that ended up being the most successful was this thing called Project Honeypot. And the idea there was, uh, could we track bad guys online? And I was, I was supposed to give a talk at a conference at MIT, and I needed some data for the talk. And so I went to a young engineer who was on our team, a guy named Lee Holloway, and I said, could we build a system to track bad guys? And he said, yeah, if, if you build the front end, I'll build the back end. And so we did. Um, we launched it uh, kind of quietly, got a bunch of our friends to sign up. Um, gathered enough data that I could give a talk at the conference, uh, and then and then put it in the corner and kind of forgot about it for um, for a number of years. And, and thankfully, um, other people. I, I tried to shut it down a number of times because it cost a hundred dollars a month or whatever to maintain. And, um, and and thankfully, people convinced me not to because um, that was the original source of data that turned into Cloudflare. And what we learned from that was how to track bad guys online. Um, we learned that. That only gave you one piece of the picture. You also had to look at the, how good traffic was working as well. Um, but most importantly, um, we really built up a level of credibility with, we had over 100,000 members of the, this open source project and we gave them insight into something that they weren't able to see in any other way. And, um, and so when, uh, when we were launching Cloudflare, um, Lee ended up, there were three of us that started the company together. So it was Michelle, Lee and I, and, um, and, and we were able to reach out to those 100,000 users and say, hey, we're, we've never asked you for anything before, but will you kick the tires on this new service that we're starting? And, um, and I remember the first 10 that signed up, we broke their internet infrastructure in almost every way imaginable. Uh, but they were like, hey, it broke. So I unsigned up, but if you try, if you fix it, then let me know. And and so we spent a week and fixed those bugs and came back and you know the next time around we only broke nine out of the ten and next time around we only broke, broke eight out of the ten and and by the time um you know it took us about nine months to to build the service before we launched it publicly but by the time we'd done that we'd had you know thousands of people sign up and and figured out all the bugs and so that what originally started out as this sort of silly little hobby um, mm -hmm. you know, really it was the seed that germinated into, into, you know, what, what today is a $9 billion company. Right. So, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about entrepreneurship because obviously you can be categorized as an entrepreneur. Um, tell me, did you ever imagine that you were going to start a company did you think um well let you know the three of you did you just say well let's try it out and see where it goes kind of how did you go from three people 10 clients to as you say nine billion dollar company i mean that's really quite an amazing growth to go from you know a highly respected you know, small company, and now you're publicly traded. Tell me a little bit about kind of that venture. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think, I think, <laughs> I, so both my parents were, I, I mean, I, they wouldn't have ever described themselves as entrepreneurs, but they were both, they were both entrepreneurs. They both, you know, started their own businesses, ran mm -hmm. their own businesses. And I remember, you know, as everybody else in, in college um, was, was looking for jobs and going to work it for these things like consulting firms. And I, and I just had no idea what that was or investment banks, which I had no idea what an investment bank was. Like the, I just had never had that experience um, growing up in the mountains of Utah, but, but my dad, you know, owned restaurants and had, had started his own stock brokerage firm and, 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 you know, was a, yeah, he, he was just, he, he did lots of, of, of those things. And my mom uh, had a, had started a series of, of gift stores that um, were all through um, the, the Mountain West. 
And um, and so I, I think I think that, that that was sort of just the only the world that I that I knew. And I think that the I'd watched as ventures that they had worked, and I'd watched as they'd failed. And and I, and I think that 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 just sort of felt like what normal was around around the around the dinner table. And so I think that um, I, I think I, I that I that I it wasn't even that. I, you know, I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. It's just, it's that I didn't know any alternative. So that was, so that was kind of the path um, that I think I was on. Um, that was, that was a very frustrating path uh, to me and, and even more so to my, to my parents um, who, who spent a lot of time just saying like, why can't you just be a lawyer <laughs> for a while? <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and I think that that's, um, I mean, again, it all worked out, but it, but it, but it didn't, it didn't have to. Um, I, I, so I, I think we were on that path. I had, um, I'd started another company that was not, not particularly successful, but was sort of puttering along, uh, and we'd, um, and, and we'd launched and, uh, and, and it was going okay, uh, and then we were sued um, uh, by of all the completely and totally crazy things, um, the adult entertainment industry. Um, because we had built something like the do not call list, uh, but for but for email, and they turns out one of the classes I must have missed in law school was that if you're providing government services and you're allegedly infringing on someone's civil rights, you are jointly and severally liable with the government um, for that. So the process server showed up one day and said, "By the way, you're being sued by the porn industry," and it's a it was crazy federal case that we were that it was going to go all the way to the 10th circuit and um and the lawyers basically said uh you know you it's going to take two to three years for this to work itself out and um and my dad at the time who was who, who owned a bunch of restaurants uh said hey that's perfect you can come run the family business and i just didn't i wasn't passionate about the restaurants and so um, and so I, I thought, what can I possibly do to buy two or three years? And, uh, and so on a whim one night, I applied to eight business schools. I was rejected from seven of them and got into, into HBS. And, um, and, and, I think, and, and I think the entire time was sort of searching for what's the thing that I'm going to do uh, when, I, when I get out of this. And I, I met Michelle, and Michelle and I are very very different. Um, she's, she's the order Muppet to my chaos Muppet. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think that um, I had recognized in the last startup that, you know, having different personalities, especially early on was really important. And so I was trying to convince her that um, we should start a company. And I think that, I mean, she kept sort of blowing me off. And then what happened was it was 2008. And uh, the financial crisis had hit and she had been an intern at Google. Uh, between her first and second year of business school. And, and the expectation was that she would get a job offer. And Google pulled all the job offers for all the interns. Mm -hmm. And um, and, so, and so she, along with everyone else, was scrambling to figure out what uh, they would do. And I, and I think as a result, partially as a result of that, I think she was more open to thinking mm -hmm. about whether we could start something. And, and again, it didn't start as, you know, we're going to build a multi-billion dollar company. It started as I mean, it started largely as I didn't want to take any more business school classes my second year of business school. And so, um, you know, could we do an independent study? And, um, and I think, you know, early on, um, while, while I think she was a very good compliment to me, I think she was concerned because she didn't know anything about this space. She had, um, she right. had uh, studied, she had a chemistry degree and-, and Okay, so she wasn't in technology at, at all she, at the time. You brought she that- She worked at Google and she'd worked at, she was a product manager at Toshiba, but she, mm -hmm. she, wasn't, she wasn't in it the way kind of I was or Lee was, um, but, but, but she was an absolutely critical set of, of skills um, for us to have. And so I think what we both, what both happened, I, I was trying to just figure out, you know, what was I going to do after school um, that wasn't go run my dad's restaurants. And, uh, and, and I think she was doing the methodical work of, is this a really good idea? Mm -hmm. And I think we both kind of realized over the course of the semester that it was, um, that, wow, there was something to this. 
we ended up in, entering the business plan competition at the school, ended up winning. Mm -hmm. um, she had an offer to go work at LinkedIn that she deferred. Mm -hmm. uh, and we spent the summer working out of, out of a venture capital firm in, in Silicon Valley's offices uh, as entrepreneurs and residents. Mm -hmm. and, um, and every day we just were like, wow, there's something here. And it was, it was you know, I remember at some point, we have any money. Um, I, I, I didn't have any money. And, um, and so we were trying to figure out how we could just get the servers to build the first prototype. Mm -hmm. And Michelle said, well, you keep talking about how passionate these Project Honeypot users are. Maybe we could just ask them. And I was like, that's a dumb idea. And Lee was like, no, that's a good idea. Let's ask them. So we sent an email out. We had their zip codes. So we sent an email out to anyone who was within 50 miles of Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. And Michelle had a little Jetta and she drove around from person to person to person and picking up these broken down servers that, um, that not, none of them worked, but we were able to kind of fashion them together and sort of oh. Frankenstein them into two working yeah. servers. But the thing that was actually the most valuable was at each of those stops, she would talk to the people and they would say, oh my gosh, if you guys built this, I would totally sign up. And I think that gave us the, the confidence and we started small um, and, and then, you know, have just continued to grow over time. Um, and, and just believe that everybody wants an internet that's secure and everybody wants an internet that's reliable and everybody wants an internet that's fast. And if we can provide that, that's, um, that's, a, that's a pretty broadly appealing um, service. Absolutely. So, you know, of course, I know you have a crystal ball there in San Francisco. So tell me what you think the internet is gonna look like 10 years from now. I mean, you probably can't even predict next year, but you know, where do you think it's going? Well, I think um, you know one of the challenges of networks um, or, or, or opportunities of networks is that they exhibit network effects, um, which tends to consolidate behind a relatively um, small set of providers. And I think that. The internet was this great democratizer for a while where it became incredibly easy for anyone, you know, to set up, set up uh, a presence and publish online. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, for most of the world, somewhat fortunately for us, uh, the internet has gone from being like the Caribbean uh, to being the North Sea. And trying to survive on your own is, is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly hard. And so I think more and more people are turning to others to try to say, I, we need the scale of being a battle tanker that can get through the waves. And, you know, when, when I think about long-term, you know, who our competitor is, sometimes internally, I sort of say, you know, I, I think Facebook is almost the company that we're competing with the most. And people are like, Facebook, that doesn't make any sense. And yet, what they are doing is they're saying, listen, the internet's complicated. It's really hard. If you're a small shop, why don't you just put all your stuff on us and we'll just take care of you. Now that comes obviously with a lot of trade-offs um, that you just have to buy into everything that they're doing. It's the same way that if you're a retailer today, um, Amazon looks really appealing because they have customers and they have merchandise and they have payment processing and it all just sort of works. And yet, you know, it's a pretty sad world if all of retail just gets sucked into Amazon or if all of the internet just gets sucked into, into Facebook. And so, you know, I think our, and, and, and yet the nature of networks and the na nature of increasing challenges, I think puts real pressure on that consolidation. And the internet has gone from this great force of dispersion to sort of this, this force of consolidation. And so, I think of our role as being one of the defenders of that open internet and making it so that you, as whether it's an individual college or uh, you know an individual retailer or individual others, can have the same network and the same behind-the-scenes infrastructure as those internet giants um, without having to sort of sell your soul to those internet giants. So another company that um, you know I look up to a lot. Um, and that I think is similar is, is, is Shopify. And they provide sort of the back-end infrastructure, the shopping cart experience um, for everyone that's out there. And you've, you've all, if you've bought anything from any small merchant that's out there, chances are um, Shopify has provided the infrastructure behind the scenes um, to, to do that. And I think that Shopify is to Amazon 
where again, it allows you to have your own brand, it allows you to have your own experience, but they take care of the sort of technical stuff under the, under the, under the covers as, as we are to Facebook. And that's how I think that we're thinking about this over the long term. And I think that if, if the Shopify's and the Cloudflare's go away, um, you know, unfortunately, I think more and more of the internet consolidates behind sort of the major providers, the Googles and, and, uh, and Facebooks of the world. And I, and I think that's a very different internet than the one that, you know, I, I watched um, really, really take flight in, in my time while I was at Trinity. Right. Well, you know, I'm glad that you brought a little bit higher education into the answer for that last question, because I think you're right. We here at Trinity College, small liberal arts college, and it feels as though it's getting more and more difficult to do what we do independently. And there are a lot of pressures for consolidation. And I think that we as an institution are trying to find that pathway forward in which we retain our independence, what we do really well, but figure out ways that we can connect, collaborate, and partner with other either institutions or even industries to figure out how we can do what we do better. Because fundamentally, our mission is educating students and using every technique that we can figure out how to do that better. So, you know, I was listening to your answer and just trying to think of how many analogies there were to your response and what we're trying to do as we not just go through this pandemic, but try and figure out what we're gonna be on the other end of the, the pandemic as a, as a college and as an educational institution. But well, we could go on with I mean, that that's forever. A, but that's, I think that, you know, at some level, um, and, and, you know, we've talked about this, but at some level, I think that's Trinity's challenge. And it always has been Trinity's challenge, right. is what, what actually are we? Um, yeah. And, and it, you know, and, and, you know, if it's, if it's just another NESCAC school, if it's just, it's, and so what is it? Right. And there's, you know, the line has been, well, we're, we're a liberal arts school that's in a, in a city, but that's, that's like, that's, that's, that's true. But if, but if I'm the buyer of that, why do I care? And right. so what are the unique advantages that, 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 that um, creates? And I think that, you know, for better or worse, the, I think what we're all living through is going to, it's going to change, it's going to change all of us in, in very dramatic ways. And I, you know, I think that we, I'll give you an example, taking it out of, out of education, but you know, at, at Cloudflare, you know, we've always been a very work from office culture. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, and we said, you know, the purpose of an office is it's a place for people to come in and work. And a lot of the things that other Silicon Valley companies do where they have cafeterias and they have gyms and they have other, other, other things, we said, no, that's just a distraction. The purpose of an office is for people to come in and work. And what's interesting is um, over the last little bit, we've, we are effectively running what is a forced experiment on losing that part of our identity where we are now all working remotely and our productivity is higher than it's ever been. And our ability to get things done is higher than it's ever been. And our inclusiveness is higher than it's ever um, been. And so it makes you think, well, maybe we had it wrong from the beginning. And maybe the purpose of the office isn't about where you get work done, but it's a place where you, you know, collaborate or socialize or build bonds or something else. And, and maybe we actually have to really rethink this. And, you know, I think that there are going to be organizations that come out of this significantly weaker, but there are going to be some organizations that come out of this significantly stronger. And I think the ones that will come out of it the strongest are the ones that make bold, decisive action, let, literally willing to sacrifice some of their sacred cows. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and, I, and I think that, you know, we're that, that, we're getting increasingly confidence that that's the case. And I think that there are going to be uh, mm -hmm. academic institutions 
that um, that will be able to completely reinvent themselves and and really define who they are. And um, right. and, and that's you know I, I have no idea what the right answer is there, but I, I do think that it, it is a chance for for Trinity to answer what has been its existential question since uh, at least I, I started there in 1992. Right. Well, there are a couple of things I want to say in response to that because I see we're coming very close to the end of our time. Um, the first thing I want to suggest is one of those truly unique features that I have found now that I've been president here for six years is it is not just that Trinity College is one of the NESCAC liberal arts colleges, but it has connections between and amongst things that I have found to be unique even when I look at other small liberal arts colleges. There's something about the size, the location that forces people to make connections in ways that are different from what I've seen before. And you feel like actually a shining example of that when you talk about English literature and computer science. That is not typical, and it was not typical in the 1990s for many of our NESCAC peers. So there is some kind of connection and, and stickiness um, about Trinity and an ability to cross paths. I'm a neuroscientist, and what I keep telling people is that I see neural networks here like I haven't seen at any other institution that I've been a part of. And I think we have to figure out how to continue to reinforce some of those interesting different connections. Because I think when you connect and you connect in different and unique ways, you come up with different questions and different answers than anyone has ever asked before. But I will also share with you that um, the Board of Trustees put together a commission, which they've called the President's Commission for the Future of Trinity College, to already start to imagine what we could be after the pandemic. And I've spoken to many of my peers and everybody's so focused on today or next year or will we open on the in the fall that they're not thinking about what are we going to look like after the pandemic and how do we want to set that course now to be able to emerge the trinity college we want to be in the future but well, you know what that's our next that's our next discussion <laughs> well one of the things but you know what's hard about that and is um, I mean, your job's really tough. Um, my, I, I, I get to be, I get to be the dictator at Cloudflare to some extent. And so Michelle and I can get on the phone and say, listen, we're going to switch this boldly. You have to report to a board of trustees. You've got to report to a group of deans, um, you know, and, and colleges. I mean, I, I think one of the, you know, the, the I am stunned that the fact that fraternities are still a question at Trinity is a question. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, you think about the purpose of a fraternity is about preserving tradition, and there's and there's value in that. Um, the purpose of a lot of academic institutions is about preserving the tradition that's there. Um, and yet, if you really want to be disruptive, you've got to find some way to make that um, to make that. Uh, to make that leap. And there, there, are, there are peer institutions of Trinity that will not survive the next 10 years. Right. And, um, and so I think the thing which is incredibly difficult about the job that you're in is, is sometimes even if you see the, the changes that need to be made, um, it, can be, it can be very difficult to overcome the inertia that is inherent in a lot of, um, uh, in a lot of academic institutions. So, so I, 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 you, you, don't, you don't have an easy, easy set of challenges ahead. <laughs> I don't, but I believe that's what soft power is about. Changing things that are very hard to change, but doing it in a fashion that you wield your soft power 
if you can't be dictatorial from the top. But as I said, maybe that's our next discussion. Maybe. <laughs> oh, so I think it's time for me to, to wrap up. Um, there's so many questions I didn't get to ask, but it was such a fascinating conversation. And um, you're really quite a remarkable conversationalist. So, um, and for someone, you're not the stereotype of, um, you know, what people think of as either the computer science major or someone who has such um, a, an important and massive company that's really based on the internet and technology. Your ability to explain what you do, why you do it, and how you do it um, was quite remarkable. And you have made me very proud um, as a Bantam. So I thank you so much. Well, hope, hope, it, hope, hope the weather stays nice in, uh, in Hartford and, uh, and, uh, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely, thank you. And I promise we will continue the conversation. Sounds good, take care. All right, thank you. Stay safe, wash your hands. All right, yeah, you too. Bye-bye. <laughs>